we're looking, we're on a series we call Looking to the Future, and uh, we've given you a page that has a number one in the top, and what that is, if you'll notice, it says in the third line down, this is a review. And what I wanted to do is just to come back and just to pull things back together because uh, only speaking once a month, it's easy for people to forget what I've been talking about, and, that, and that's understandable. So what we've been doing is we're currently looking at Israel's future in the Millennial Kingdom. Now, in, in, in much of Christendom today, the church is regarded as the replacement for Israel, and Israel is treated as though it has no future. There's nothing for Israel because they've been replaced by the church. But if we take the Bible literally, if we interpret Scripture literally, and I put in, here, I put in the notes here, I said when Scripture's interpreted, interpreted literally, as it must be if we're to understand it, Israel clearly has a promised future. Now, I, I'm, I'm getting, as I get older, I'm getting a little less uh, apologetic for some of the things that I believe, and I'm a little more blunt. So I say we must take Scripture literally if we intend to understand it. Because there's so much of Scripture you're not going to understand. If we try to allegorize it, we are just not going to understand Scripture. Now, our favorite summary passage about Israel's future, now we're not going to go there, but we've been there before, and you can mark this down. I like this passage of Scripture, not because it tells you everything, but because it gives you a summary of what Israel's future is like. In Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, Israel has painted as being the center of the world with Jerusalem, the capital of the, of the planet at that time in the Millennial Kingdom. So there's no doubt that if, Israel is, if Jerusalem is the capital, then Israel is going to be the center of activity on the earth. It's going to be the center of government. And there's going to be, just by doing that much, it guarantees you that you're going to have a pretty important city. You're going to have a pretty big city. You're going to have a lot of wealth coming in there, a lot of people coming in there because of all the things that are involved. So there's no doubt that Israel's got a future. But now what, we're, what we have wanted to do is, as much as we're able to from Scripture, try to see, well, what is it going to be like in the millennium when all of these things go on? What will the, how will the people live? And so... We've been dealing with the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is important because, because it contains things that are going to give you laws for the future of the kingdom. These, there are some laws here that tell us exactly what's going to be enforced in the kingdom. Now, of course, the problem here is that people want to, they're so determined to make the, the words of Christ fit the church today that they will twist, they will bend, they will allegorize them, they'll tie them in knots to make them fit. And I'm sorry, they just don't fit because the Sermon on the Mount was not given to us. Now, just, just by way of remembrance, you'll notice we have on here, after John the Baptist went to prison, Jesus began a new message. And I have it printed right in your notes, Matthew 4.12. It says, now when Jesus heard that John was cast in prison, he departed into Galilee. Now, this is not at the beginning of his ministry because he's, in verse 17 we're going to see he's going to start to speak something. But I want you to notice something, that this was not day one of Christ's ministry. Because if you go back earlier, you'll, look, you'll see this, you'll notice, John. I have printed in your notes, John 3, 22 through 24. It says, After these things came Jesus and his disciples into the land of Judea, and there he tarried with him and baptized. And John was also baptizing in Anon near Salem, because there was much water there, and they came and baptized. For John was not yet cast into prison. So there was a time in his earthly ministry 
when John was out there still baptizing and making disciples while he was out there, and it says John wasn't cast into prison. But you'll notice Matthew 4.12 said Jesus is going to start doing something, but he's going to start doing it after John's cast into prison. So there's a period of time in Christ's earthly ministry, and as it turns out, it's about a year and a half, about halfway through his ministry, John gets put in prison, and then things begin to change. And then we get this message beginning. And this is the message about the kingdom. Because in Matthew 4, verse 17, you'll notice what it says. And this is by way of review. This shows you that Jesus is talking about something new, something he's going to start, he's going to tell you about a kingdom. So in verse 17 of the, of the fourth chapter, and it's printed in your notes, from that time, Jesus, now you'll notice I have highlighted, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, if it says he began to preach, I have put in bold font, one cannot begin to do what they've already been doing. If you say he began to preach, that means he wasn't preaching this before, was he? No. But we see that he was, he was ministering, he was baptizing back in the third chapter of John, and John isn't in prison, so he's out there. And if you go back a little further, and we've done this before, but you could write in your notes if you wanted to, John 3, 3 and 3, 5. If you write that in your notes, it might be helpful, because it does tell you that Jesus was preaching a different message. We saw in Matthew four seventeen, he said, Repent, for the kingdom of the heavens is at hand. But back in John 3, 3, it says the kingdom of God he was talking about. So the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the heavens can't be the same thing because he starts a message. How would you start what you're already doing? That just, you'd have to be a lawyer to come up with that. <laughs> I say that unkindly, Joe. I mean, I like, I like lawyers' jokes a lot. So, I mean, you just, you can't begin what you're already doing. So the kingdom of, you can see what the kingdom of God is in John 3, 3. If you remember, what, was, what, what did Jesus tell Nicodemus? You must be born again. He's talking about spiritual salvation. So the kingdom of the heavens is not about spiritual salvation. It's about a kingdom. And, not surprisingly, now since he's going to say he begins to preach this kingdom, would it not be reasonable to assume that he's going to tell you some of the regulations and the rules about the kingdom? That's where the Sermon on the Mount comes in. It follows right after this. After you get to the fourth chapter, he goes through, there are a few events that he does along the way. But then in the fifth chapter, he starts to teach. And, and please notice, please notice, Matthew 5, verses 1 through 16 is directed primarily to the 12 apostles. And we really should say 11 because technically Judas is not a saved person. But he could carry the message out, and he did carry the message out. It must have been interesting for him to do something he didn't really believe in, but he was doing it. But anyway... You, so the first 16 verses are addressed to the disciples. Now, the reason you say that is if you look at the first two verses of, of Matthew 5, and, and I'm, a, I'm a literalist, and, and, and so are you, I hope. And so we read, And seeing the multitudes, he, that's Jesus, went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Who's them refer to? He sets on a mountain, his disciples come to him, and he opens his mouth, and he teaches them. Now, it'd be kind of hard to read anybody else in, but the disciples, wouldn't it? So he's going to start off talking to the disciples. Now, I believe the first 16 verses in this are dealing with the disciples and telling them 
this is what you're going to be like. Because we'll find out in, we find in the 10th chapter that he sent them out before he was out. He sent them out as his advance, as it were. They were going to be his ambassadors. They were going to go out for him, and they were going to prepare the way. And so what he's doing is he's telling them how they should conduct themselves. Now, you can see that. If you want to see the, the evidence of it, look at verse 11 of Matthew 5. It said, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you uh, falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Now notice, for so persecuted they the prophets who were before you. Now all the nation of Israel wasn't going to be a prophet. He's not speaking to all the people of Israel. Who's he talking to? He's telling his disciples, you are going to be prophets. You're prophets for me. And, and it says that you're going to, verse 11, you're going to be persecuted and they're going to revile you. Who's going to be reviling these prophets? The people of Israel. The disciples are going out to Israel, and they're going to be telling about Christ coming, that he's coming to speak. They're his forerunners. They're going to be reviled by the people of Israel. So this isn't given to all the Jews. Some have tried to say, well, these are all saved people. This is for the church. That would make no sense. You have people reviling you in your church, and you're a prophet. I'm sorry, but I'm not a prophet. I've, I've uh, been prophetic about a few things. You can, uh, if you'd give the sheets out. Uh, we have some notes we give out to, to uh, Debbie and to uh, John, or Michael, rather, excuse me, Michael. <laughs> Looking right at him, I know his name. Uh, did, we, uh, did you get it some, Andrea, Troy? Oh, okay, well, we have notes. So we're basically, we're on the bottom of, uh, bottom of uh, the page. It has one in the corner, which is a review. It says on the top of the page, it's actually a review. And what we're talking about is, and, Matt, and the point number two on this is point, by way of review, is that Matthew 5, 1 through 16 was given to the 12 disciples because they were going to be the forerunners. They were going to be sent out by Jesus to announce his coming, to predict the things that he was going to say to the people of Israel, but they were going to be reviled by the people of Israel. And it wouldn't make any sense to take this any other way. This is directed to his disciples, his forerunners, how they're going to go out and minister to the people. Now, I do believe, I do believe if you look at verse 17 of the fifth chapter, you'll see, I think that at that point, Jesus now is going to turn to the crowd. Now, it doesn't say this, but it would make perfect sense. Now, I, if I'm wrong here, forgive me for that. But as I look at this, it makes perfect sense to say at this point now, he looks at his disciples and he lifts his eyes up and he looks over them to the people that are out there because there are people there. And he says this in verse 17, think that uh, think not that I am come to destroy the law of the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill them. This announcement here says the law is finished. Now, you don't read it that way, but it says, Think I haven't come to destroy the law of the prophets. He didn't come to destroy it. He came to fulfill it. Now, let me ask you a simple question. When something is fulfilled, do we do anything with it again? Do we go back and repeat it over again? When something's fulfilled, we set it aside. Actually, it's the word to fill. So if I take this cup and I drink this whole cup of coffee and I fill it back up again, am I going to, once it's full, am I going to try to fill, put it in again, put more on top of it? And you have back in the fourth, back in, you can see an example of this back in the fourth chapter where he said the law is fulfilled. Your same word is back in chapter 4, verse 14. 
It says, in the beginning of verse 13 of chapter 4, it says, And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is on the coast, in the borders of Zebulun and Naphtalim, that it might be fulfilled. Same word, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. So once that prophecy was fulfilled, it wasn't going to be taken up again, was it? I'm not expecting Jesus to come back at the second advent and go down there and do the same thing again. It's been fulfilled. Why am I saying this? Because what you have in verse 17, I believe, is an announcement to the people of Israel. I'm not here to destroy the law. I'm here to fulfill it. Now, once it's fulfilled, what does that mean? It's gone. It's gone. So if he's fulfilling the law and he's offering a kingdom, what has he got to do? He's got to tell them the rules, doesn't he? You see, the Sermon on the Mount is not for the church. It is to tell the people of Israel, this is what you're going to get. And the key to understanding it comes right there in verse 17. I am not come to destroy. I am come to fulfill. When something is fulfilled, it's done. You know, another illustration, it's not the same word, but there's another place that, that really strikes me. If you look at Revelation chapter 15, there's, there's something here that it's, uh, this isn't a side of a sort, but it's, it's something I think that's worth, worth mentioning. In Revelation 15, people like to think about God's wrath today and how God has wrath to show today. Well, it does say in Romans 1 that God's wrath is revealed. But you know what? It's never been poured out. It's just been revealed. It's there. <clears throat> now, you'll notice Revelation 15, verse 1. And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having... Seven seven la the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. Now, once those, those are poured out on the earth, it says that they're filled up. Are they going to be poured out again and again and again? No, they're, fu fu they're fulfilled. They're filled up. It's done. And so when Jesus back in, in Matthew 5.17 says, I am come to fulfill the law. Once the law is fulfilled, set aside. It's going to, and so the millennial kingdom is not going to have the law of Moses. Well, then you say, well, what is it going to have? That's exactly what he's going to tell you about. And that leads us right back into our study because he has told them that and now he's gone through and he, he talks about, verse 21, he talks about the law and murder. We went through that some time ago. He says, you've heard it said, but I say. Now, you heard it said, as we've mentioned before, that, that, term, that terminology doesn't mean that you heard scuttlebutt. It's just a historical fact that most of the people could not afford to own the scriptures. You know, we, we take it for granted. You can buy the Bible cheap almost any place. People will give you Bibles. But in those days, it, they were handmade scrolls, and they were very expensive. In fact, uh, I remember reading, I, I should have saved the website, but it said that there was one pharaoh that part of a wedding dowry he gave for one of his daughters were set were about 50, roll, 50 rolls of papyri, 50 rolls of writing paper. It was a wedding gift. They were so valuable that that was an honorable thing to give. So paper was very, very expensive, and people wrote it all by hand. I could just see, <laughs> I could just see the Harry Potter books being copied out by hand. Can you imagine how much they would cost if they had to copy? Were they like seven, 800 pages long, some of them? Yeah, I mean, so could you imagine how much that would cost if you had to pay somebody to make the paper by hand and then write it by hand? That's why Jesus said, you've heard it said, because the people heard it read in the temple or in the, in the synagogues. So it's not, it's not demeaning the law. He just said, you've heard it said. It's, you've, it's been read, you've heard it. And he said, but I say. Now, when, he, when the law says one thing and he says, but I say, what does that mean? 
He's replacing it. He's, this is the way it says, but here's what I say is going to happen. And that goes right back to verse 17. You can see it. He says, I'm fulfilling the law. I'm here to fulfill it. So here's what's going to happen. This is the way it used to be. This is the way it's going to be. I'd paraphrase it by, by saying that. You've heard it said of old, but I say, I would just paraphrase it by saying, this is the way it used to be. This is the way it's going to be. It's kind of a paraphrase, but that really tells you in common everyday English, that's what's going on here. So that brings us all the way up to, we went through several of them, and where we left off was on, on Matthew 5, 39 through 42. We've gone through some of the other ones, and we have notes, and uh, if, you don't, if you have misplaced or you want notes again or extra copies, I did put them on our church website. If you go on the church website under View Our Notes, uh, you can find a file with my name on it, and you go down through there, and you can find this series called Looking to the Future, and I'm going to try to keep it updated so that when you go in there, uh, you can print the notes out if you want to or send them to someone if you, uh, if you want to or whatever you might want to do with them. Now, one thing we know about this law, about this is the law beginning in verse 38. You have heard that, it's been, that it was been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. But I say unto you that you resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite you on the right cheek, turn to him your left also. And if a man shall, take, shall sue thee at law to take away thy... Thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go to a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asks, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not away. Now, I know there's some people that want to live by that today, and there's some things in here. Uh, the one thing that you can see in this, now we did talk a little bit about this already, but the millennial law will not encourage legal retribution. Now, that's different than today. Today, uh, well... Today, we do have some, well, we used to have, I should say. Well, I guess I can't say we have retribution or even justice any longer. But the fact that it says not to resist evil does not mean that there's not going to be legal action in the, in the millennial kingdom. You know, we could take that and say, well, it's, it's, no, it just says, it simply says, I say unto you that you don't do it, that you resist not evil. Now, please remember, if you have any doubt about it, Make a note to see Matthew chapter 13 and verse 41. Because it does tell us, and let me read it for you. If it's, you, you could write it in here, I didn't put it, I think it's in here somewhere. And it was just above that, actually just above the point E. On, we're on page 26 at point E. And just above it, you see the reference to Matthew 13, 41. And it says, The Son of Man shall send forth his angels and shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and them that do now, it says iniquity, but it's the word for lawlessness. So if anybody wants to sin in the millennial kingdom, it's not going to be the local police that come and get you. This, these police are not going to be somebody that you're going to try to bribe or argue with. These are, these are spirit beings. These are angels. They're going to come. And so there is going to be... So this is not saying... Jesus is not saying that don't resist evil. In other words, we're going to, we're, there's not going to be any law and they're going to run rampant. That's what they want to do today. And you can see how that's working. Just look at Portland, Oregon. They've made that city into shambles. We used to live out there. It was a pretty city. I don't know if I want to even go there at all now. So, now you'll notice I have point number two. And this is something on, on, on your page 26. Jesus is not clarifying the law. Now, traditional Christendom wants to, more than anything, they want the Sermon on the Mount for us today because it is a beautiful sermon, and nobody's going to deny that. It's beautifully stated. It's beautifully written. It's magnificent in its speech. But that doesn't mean just because it sounds nice, I have a right to take it because I like it. 
You know, that doesn't work that way. There's a lot of things I like. I, don't, I see things in the store I like. Do I have the right to go take them? Well, they're not mine. They're not mine. I can't do that. Now, you notice what I put in here. In traditional Christendom, this is misused, as this quote illustrates. Now, I'm not picking on this person because this is a respected biblical commentator, Albert Barnes, his notes out of the Bible, taken off the sword. And Albert Barnes is good on some things. In fact, he's one of the better commentators most of the time. And he has a lot of good material, especially historical facts. But when it comes to the Sermon on the Mount, I'm sorry. He's as wrong as he can be. Here's what he says about this law. He says, quote, Christ finds no fault with the rule as applied to the magistrates and does not take it upon himself to repeal it. Oh, wait a minute. Didn't he say, but I say unto you? Doesn't that sound like he's repealing it? But instead of confining it to the magistrates, the Jews extended it to private conduct and made it the rule by which to take revenge. And I skipped a little bit. Our Savior remonstrates against this. He declares that the law had no reference to the private revenge. It was given to regulate the magistrate and the private conduct was to be governed by different principles. Now, let me ask you a simple question. Have you ever read anything in the Old Testament that said anything like this, this last part, that this was for... When, the, when, this, when this principle is given under the, under the law, there's no explanation that says, well, now this is just for this group of people. It just says this is the way it is. This is the way it is. You just simply, you don't, you, you eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. And there's nothing in here. Jesus is not saying anything. If you read this chapter and you read the New Testament, you're not going to find any place where it says anything like this. This is just, this is just someone who wants so badly for this to be for us today that they're going to make up something. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry. As good a man as this man may have been in his time, and he's been gone for some time, so he probably knows better now. But as good as this, as, as nice as his words sound and as sincere as his intentions may have been, he's wrong. Because it just literally says, I say. Now you'll notice point number three I put on your notes. While this quotation claims that Jesus doesn't take upon himself to repeal it, the text of Scripture says, But I say. In all bold font, you'll notice if Jesus, if words mean anything, Jesus was repealing an Old Testament law. He was taking it away. Eye for an eye, tooth for tooth is gone. But now, as we put in here, the reason commentators twist the scripture, or more politely allegorize, is because they want the Sermon on the Mount for today. And if this, if this obsession... This obsession causes them to overlook what the passage is actually saying. Now, there's a principle in verse 39 that I think that they're just not missing because they're not taking it literally. It says, resist not evil. And literally, it is, do not resist the evil. Now, on your notes, I, put, I did put the Greek word in there, and it says this word for resist means to oppose someone involving not only psychological attitude, but also corresponding behavior. behavior. And that comes from, and I didn't put it in there, but if you want to know, it's from, it's from a, uh, Lou Nida, L-O-U-W, Nida, Dash Nida, two different individuals. They're, common, they're uh, concordance. They, they're a very good one. So it says to not oppose someone. In other words, it's looking at striking back and getting revenge. In other words, what Jesus is saying, the, the core principle here is you don't resist, you don't strike back. You don't have a hostile attitude that looks for the chance to get even. I don't know about you, but when I was unsaved, and sometimes if I'm not careful as a believer, if someone does something to me overtly really rotten, I plan, I think, I'm going to get this person. I'm going to get them good, and they're not going to see it coming. 
I see my son-in-law back there, Troy, smiling. He understands what I'm saying. He and I think alike. <laughs> yeah, I'm not picking on him. He, he and I think alike in that subject. And it's, it's, it's easy to do. But see, Jesus says, now, you don't do that. It's not going to be done. Now, there's a pretty good reason why. If someone does something like that to you that's really wrong, what's going to happen to them? Matthew 13, 41. You don't have to do anything. God's going to take care of it. Now, of course, I know, I know, I always say the same thing. I say, well, I, I just want to help God out, right? <laughs> I just want to give God a little help here. No, it's just God's going to take care of it. He's going to send Matthew 13, 41. Now, that's revealed later, but it does bear on this that there are going to be angels that they're going to take care of business. And when someone does something that's wrong, because this word for evil, you'll notice I put it down here. This is the word that's a, it's the malignant evil. It's the, it's the lacking in character that's rotten, and it doesn't want to be left alone, but it wants to spread. It's like a cancer. It's, one, it's the stronger of the two common words for evil. So this is someone that comes along. So what Jesus is saying, don't stand up against this person that's out there. He's doing, he's doing rotten things to you, and he'll do them to other people too, and he wants them to spread. He wants you to get involved and do it to someone else. Now, you'll notice at the bottom of the page 26, the idea of not opposing a spreading wickedness is foreign to every civil society and is not given to the church. We can see today, all you have to do is look at places today where they won't, they won't fight back against some of these terrorist groups that are on the streets. Does, that, does the evil stop when they don't oppose it? It spreads. This, the civil society has got to maintain law and order. The millennial society is no different. Remember Matthew 13, 41. There will be a strict enforcement of all the laws in the, in the millennial kingdom. So, uh, now top of page 27 on our notes. Uh, but the definition really tells us in the millennial kingdom that they're not supposed to actively seek revenge or do the same thing to the offender. Now, that's sensible. And we put it in here, of course, there again. It won't be necessary to oppose evil. Points in the top of page 27. Because Jesus had already said, The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity. And by the way, that iniquity, you notice I put it in your notes, is literally lawlessness, and it's the word that is used in 1 John 3, 4 in the Greek text to define sin. Sin is called lawlessness. Lawlessness is acting as though there's no restraints on what you're doing. A lawless person just says, hey, there's a TV in, the, in that store over there, I'm going to break the window and take it. I have the right to do it. There's nothing that says I can't do it. Yes, there is, but when you're lawless, you don't see that. And that word for iniquity, by the way, if you want to... This is one of, those, one of those frustrating words. Did you know that the word iniquity in the King James translates 15 different words? 11 different Hebrew words and 4 different Greek words. So when you see iniquity in, in the text of Scripture, if you don't use an interlinear, if you, you, if you use esort, you can check and see what the word is. But otherwise, you don't really know what it means. Iniquity really comes from Old English. It means inequality is what it actually meant. Something that's not equal. Well, is something which is not equal necessarily terrible and wrong and evil and rotten? Might be, might not be. It's just unequal. I, I don't know. But so you have to check. But here in, in Matthew thirteen forty one, this word means lawlessness. Now, you know, this is what is interesting here is this millennial law is similar to what we have today. It's similar, but it's not the same. And so I wanted to put that in here because... When we say that we're not under these things, there's something similar that we do have. And so I can see why people would go here and pick this 
uh, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, but uh, don't do that and don't resist evil and all these. I can see why people want to go there because there is a similarity that might cause you to think that this maybe somehow does have effect today. Now, in, in, Matthew, in Romans chapter 12, if you go there, let's, let's turn over to Romans 12 in the time we have left over to Romans chapter 12. You're going to see something that sounds similar, but it's not exactly the same. Okay, we could actually go back to verse 17, but verse 19. Dearly, avenge, dearly beloved, avenge not yourself, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. Therefore, if your enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing you shall heap coals of fire in his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Now avenge yourselves... Avenge not yourself is not the same as don't resist evil. Because you, you, can, you can be resisting evil trying to stop it, but you're not to avenge yourself. And the difference is you're not doing something. When Scripture says that you should not to do something or stop doing something, it means that they're either ready to do it or they are doing it. So when he says to the Romans, avenge not yourselves, they're getting ready to do it, or they're wanting to do it, or they're going to do it whenever they need to do it. And he says, don't do it. Now, that's not the same thing is saying not to resist evil. You can, you can, they could resist evil. They could stop somebody. That's fine. But the difference is not to strike back. And so there's a similarity, and you can see how they could do it. But, but you'll notice point D down here. I said nowhere in the scriptures, nowhere in the epistles to the church, is a Christian told not to oppose malignant evil as a citizen. When people try to do something evil to you, there's nothing that says you should let them come and steal off of you. There's nothing that says that you should just give them everything you have. There have been some that have gone that far and they've said, well, if someone comes and asks of you, instead of stealing, they're going to steal, they're going to take it, so you just give it to them. Really? You don't find that in the epistles anyplace. I do not see that anywhere. I don't see anything like that. And so if we want to take that for today, folks, we're pretty gullible. That's, that would be what I call, I wouldn't be called spiritual, I'd be called gullible. I'd be called stupid. Really. We're not told to do that. Now, the difference that comes here is that the similarity, rather, the, the difference is that, that, it's, that avenging not yourselves is not the same as not resisting evil. Avenging yourself, oh, you see the evil, you can stop it. But then you might want to strike back. There's the difference. In the millennial kingdom, you don't, you don't even resist it. You don't even stop it from coming. But now the similarity is that vengeance is God's business. Now this, I kind of like this. You know, there are some who have taught that it is wrong to seek revenge, that you shouldn't ever strike back, you shouldn't even want it to happen. Well, you know, I always had a problem with that. But when I look at it, it says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, say the Lord. What does that tell you? Does it say it's wrong to want revenge? No. It says it's wrong to take it. It's right to let the Lord have it. In other words, if you want revenge for what's going on, for what the world has done to you, it's all right. I have no problem. Neither does the Lord. Says, but she says, you let me take care of it. You let me do it. That's the difference. That's the difference here. Now, in the Millennial Kingdom, it's the same way. They don't have to do anything. We keep going back to Matthew 13, 41. We know that angels are going to come along, and anybody that does wrong, they're going to get immediate justice. Now, we're not going to get immediate justice necessarily, but you can be sure of one thing, and I, I didn't put that in your notes, but if it's an unsafe person that's done something to you, 
There is a time coming in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, the great white throne, where men are going to answer to God face to face for everything they've done. And if an unsaved person has done rotten stuff to any of us, they're going to be answering for that. And they are going to get it. So God's going to, that's what it says, I will repay, say the Lord. He will repay. If it's a Christian that's done wrong to you, God may chasten that Christian. If it's an unbeliever, they're going to face the great white throne. They're going to, they're going to get it. So there, there's quite a, bit, quite a bit of difference there. Now, you can read the bottom of this about the, uh, the, the, the placing of coals on their head. We, we, our time is up. I don't want to go into that. But you can read that. Uh, it just shows you that we can, by doing the right thing, just let the Lord do it. Because the last point on the page, keep this in mind. God will only heap the coals of fire on the head of someone that's doing you wrong if you leave the retribution to him. Because if you get your fingers involved, God's not going to do anything like that. So, this law, it's not for today. We don't have anything exactly like this. The closest we can come is saying, when there's wrong that goes on today, uh, I'm, I'm not going to oppose it. I'm not going to oppose it like, I'm not, going to, I'm not going to try and get even with it. Because you know what? I know God's going to take care of it. All this stuff that's going on that they're doing wrong to our society today, sometimes it makes my blood boil. That's why I don't listen to the news anymore. My blood boiled away and I don't want to lose any more of it. <laughs> I'm going to be dry. No, I don't pay attention to it because I know whatever they're doing, I will repay, saith the Lord. Good enough for me. Good enough for me, so I'm not going to worry about it. So, we'll go on uh, in a few weeks. We're going to go on and look at the next law that's in here. But I, I hope you can see that the Millennial Kingdom is not anything like what we're used to. We, we, we have our whole system of justice and everything is built upon all this other, all kinds of things. Whereas the Millennial Kingdom's laws are going to be straight, simple, straightforward. You're not going to have lawyers making plea bargains. That always drives me crazy when someone gets a plea bargain. And they get off on a much lighter sentence because they can't get tried. They don't have all the evidence and all, they don't go through all the legal rigmarole to convict them. So they get them on a lesser charge. And somebody does something terrible gets a slap on the wrist. That's not going to happen in the millennial kingdom. And by the way, it's not going to happen at the great white throne either. So take heart in that, folks. I take heart in that all the time. God is going to repay he is going to take justice. There will be justice served for all this stuff that goes on out there. Even if it's not to you, it still bothers me, even the stuff that doesn't affect me directly. If it's wrong, I don't like to see it. But God is going to repay. I'm glad for that.